Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence, learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. We have an awesome show in store for you. Very cross-cultural, international. Uh, before we get to my amazing callers, if you haven't already, check out my website, sayitskillfully.com. Please do. Uh, we have a mailing list and getting some great reviews on tips in my short newsletter. And I encourage you to take advantage of my free mini course and get a head start on how you can speak up positively and productively in any situation. And we are starting with someone who took a very long flight around the globe from the States to Asia. And I welcome Grace. Grace, thank you for joining us. Hi, Molly. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, no, it's so fabulous. We haven't caught up in a long while and you've got a fascinating story. So I'm just curious, what is top of mind for you? Uh, I think it has been uh, almost a two years since I appeared on your show last time. And I actually just graduated from my PhD program two years ago. And we talked about, you know, uh, navigating um, communication in the different uh, uh, cultural organizations. And now I think I have more experiences because I went to South Africa for my postdoc research right after my PhD graduation in America. So I have more experiences and uh, lessons from uh, different cultural and national uh, experiences. Well, so I think this is, first of all, congratulations on your PhD, which is huge. And I also know in um, the academic world that you're in, female, higher, uh, highest education there sometimes cannot be the easiest thing. So I am curious, how have you found the workplace? Um, any, any challenges? Or are you just shooting up like a shooting star? Uh, well, I... I think in America, when I was doing my uh, higher education experiences in America, I found uh, it was a little bit challenging because most of the professors we had at different universities are uh, white male professors or white female professors. And sometimes we can have professors, people of color, uh, but then it's really hard for a Asian woman to have mentors who share similar cultural or national background. Uh, but then when I went to South Africa to continue my uh, postdoc academic career, I actually uh, felt like uh, the experiences in America are way much more satisfying because um, it's actually more diverse and more inclusive in America compared to, you know, the higher education system in South Africa. So, you know, this kind of comparison just made me feel like um, we actually made a lot of progress in the higher education system in America. 
So I really appreciate this. I've been talking a lot. Hello? Can you hear me okay? Yes. I've been hearing a, a Can you lot. hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you now. That's great. I um, have talked a lot about context for people. And in the States, I, I do want to applaud how uh, far we've gone. I think that people don't see it at parity. I just had a call with someone, you know, oh, we're not, not, not as many women in senior roles. I get it. I also think just being able to step back and appreciate the progress we've made for all underrepresented groups, understanding that there's a way to go. But I think that notion of what's possible and positive versus taking maybe a negative what isn't. And I think that sounds like, Grace, you had a nice reality check when you got to South Africa. Um, could you just give us an example so that we appreciate perhaps what was maybe you were a little shocked at how um, how things were there? Uh, well, first, from a professional um, perspective, you know, I graduated with my PhD in America and then I went to South Africa. So in the higher education system, you know, people... Uh, respect you after you get your PhD and when you do your postdoc, people uh, have the common understanding that this is a uh, early career development for a recent PhD graduate. But in South Africa, I was still called a student, uh, which made me feel like, no, I was not a student anymore, uh, even though I consider myself a student for life, but I have already earned my PhD. I have studied my career as a postdoc uh, graduate. So I think this is like a, this kind of a difference um, just made me feel like, uh, uh, in the American higher education system, it is more mature and uh, people are respected for their achievement at different stage. So this is the first um, difference, kind of like a national uh, higher education system difference. And in terms of the cultural and diversity inclusive, I can tell you a very funny story because you know, as an Asian, uh, definitely in America, you are considered people of color, you are considered a minority. And when I went to South Africa, I uh, kept hearing the word people of color as well. But then I asked my colleagues there, like, uh, was I considered people of color uh, in South Africa? And they told me, no, you are not. Um, because Asian, you really are not in the conversation in that contest in South Africa because there are not so many Asians in South Africa. So when they are talking about people of color in South Africa, they usually uh, refer to uh, Indian heritage people, indigenous people. So, you know, uh, as an Asian woman who was continuing my uh, early career in South Africa, then I didn't feel like I have a belonging in that um, higher education system. So I think that's kind of like my uh, another comparison between South Africa and America. Fascinating. The yeah, this is um, my hello. Yeah. The the um, question I have is the sense of belonging is a really really big topic, and. Um, were you the only Asian person that uh, around where you were? Were there others? <laughs> yes, I stayed there for almost a year, and I was uh, pretty much the only Asian face uh, in that uh, 
yeah, in that building and on that campus. And uh, I went to, because that is a college town, I pretty much like uh, all the people in that college town, the, the restaurants, you know, uh, shops, they know me because they can only see the old, my only Asian face. And also because of COVID, you know, not so many travelers from Asian countries. I think that's another reason. So this sense of belonging, I, I want to just ask you, because I think this is important for all of us, because I think there's an, mm-hmm. there's an opportunity, and it's great if others welcome us and create the sense of belonging for us. For sure, that is fabulous. However, I also think the opportunity potentially is to not be your own worst enemy when going in and feeling like I don't belong. And so that ability to flip a switch and saying, I do belong, Perhaps my role, because you're a pioneer, if you're the only Asian in everywhere, that there's a chance to really, you know, I, I, I kind of get this because my parents came from overseas and they were the first of for sure. And they, you know, things were not level playing field, to put it mildly. So that opportunity to say, let me take a role of the educator, realize that everyone's experience with the lone Asian, that would be grace, kind of is their experience. So you have a chance to drive if you will, their perception and and help people appreciate and learn and grow. Um, so I'm just curious if you were, uh, how you how you treated that. You know, I mean, I think that's a really interesting personal decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I went to South Africa as the South African National Research Foundation uh, grant holder, and I uh, conducted my academic research uh, on China, Africa, and the United States engagement in Africa. So I do have uh, advantage in terms of professional and personal background in doing that kind of research in South Africa. So I was really proud of that. Um, So I think professionally, I uh, wanted to, you know, I was respected because of this professional and personal background. But uh, in terms of the sense of belonging, uh, I think it is research is unique, and not so many people were involved uh, in that research with this kind of unique background. So when you were trying to engage with people on some certain topics, I, I feel like it's hard uh, to find people who can engage with you completely um, in South Africa. So that is um, probably like there's a lack of academic belonging there. Uh, so this is, yeah, so this just like from a professional perspective. And from a personal pr- perspective, um, th- there are some, you know, Chinese uh, in South Africa um, for different reasons, you know, some people just doing business there, some people just work there. Uh, but because I went to South Africa from America, so I feel like, like uh, I, I was not completely, completely like them. So this created a different dynamic for myself. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, on one hand, you know, I can engage with both, you know, Americans in South Africa or, you know, Europeans in, in South Africa or Chinese. But on the other hand, 
you know, uh, you feel like, oh, yeah, I can engage with a lot of people because I have this diverse international background, but it's really hard to find the specific group. Yeah, this is a really interesting topic about how we see ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is an ongoing journey. I guess this idea of how we see ourselves, um, and, and I'll, I'll put this out, how do, how do you see yourself? I mean, when you describe yourself ethnically, how do you, how do you identify uh, well, when I was in South Africa, I identified because because of the um, you know political or geopolitical issue on the international stage. I think a lot of uh, South Africans they were curious uh, uh, and they always asked me uh, like, uh, how would you identify yourself? Like you are Chinese or you know or uh, you think America is your home? And I would always answer that I, I think China is my first mother and America is my second stepmother. And I always want my stepmother and my first mother to get along well with each other. So when I um, give them this kind of answer, you know, and I think the local people in South Africa, they, uh, they kind of have uh, uh, my identity. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like I'm... Um, but academic, I'm a scholar. Uh, I don't want this kind of personal background to influence my uh, academic work in a professional way. But if you want to ask my self-identification, uh, I think that is how I identify myself. Yeah, and it's just no right or wrong. I hope this answers your question. Yeah, yeah, no, I just uh, there's no right or wrong. I think it's a great thing for all of us to think about. How do we think of ourselves? Um, there's roles. There's all sorts of ways, and I think that, you know, there's no right or wrong, but I do encourage folks to appreciate that when we're speaking, when we're interacting, it's a reflection of you. And oftentimes people I've heard, you know, mm -hmm. I can't believe so-and-so thinks such and such of me. And that's generally because mm -hmm. we somehow telegraph that <laughs> unconsciously. So I yeah. think it is a chance just uh, to consider, right? Yeah. And not to, I also think it's, um, you know, we want others to be open of us. And I think we have to be open of, of our own many facets, you know, for how we might move through space. So hopefully that, that broadens it. Um, yeah. As you're moving forward, Grace, just to wrap it up here, what I, is your biggest, um, I guess, what is your biggest opportunity going forward? Uh, I think I, I just want to add on what I just answered you because I didn't think of myself, uh, want to pursue a diplomatic role or, you know, as an academic scholar, I want to pursue a diplomatic role. But my experience in South Africa, especially from the questions about China, America, you know, it just triggered myself that, oh, I wanted to play a diplomatic role, you know, on the international stage. So uh, this is kind of like a career thinking uh, because of my experience in South Africa. And I also want to share a story with you because uh, I went to some restaurant in South Africa and sometimes some waitresses, actually one waitress asked me, uh, where, uh, where are you from? I think you're from America. And I asked him like, how did you know I'm from America? And he said, because you have a strong American accent, I watch a lot of Netflix. So, you know, that is a very funny conversation. So it's not like, uh, what, what's your skin color? What do you what you identify yourself? Sometimes just, you know, how you talk, from the accent, the people just have a, 
uh, sense of yourself. So I just want to share this story with you. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. We're going to wrap it on there. Um, we're going to come back, Grace. So I want to <laughs> thank you for um, sharing generously and mm -hmm. uh, your courage to navigate different cultures. We're going to open it up at the end, so we'll come back to you in a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and right now, I'm super excited mm -hmm. because we're hopping over to Natalie, my friend from Mighty Malta, now in Qatar. Uh, Natalie, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for having me on again. It's really It's been a while. Yeah, it's great. And you, my friend, have been all over. So I'm really curious what's top of mind for you. Um, well, like Grace, uh, I took a bit of a career break, really, because I'm an educator. So I used to teach for the last 18 years. And then I, when I moved back to Malta from Dubai, we left Dubai to go back to Malta. And um, I did my master's in strategy leadership and change management. So I always, as an educator, I'm always also thinking of lifelong learning as well. I don't think we ever stop learning. Um, and because my life has always been about change, I thought actually studying change management and a more behavioral science approach, um, I don't know, it gave me a better perspective. Uh, anyway, I went back to Qatar and I'm just applying what I, how you have to change on your own. Like your, your life is going to change all the time. You always have to be you always have to adapt and find strategies to adapt. And that's basically where I'm coming from, even career change, which is what I have now. <laughs> okay. So I love that you've embraced change and not many people embrace it so much as to study it and get a master's degree in it. So kudos <laughs> to you, my friend. I've always been in awe of you. So talk to listeners. Maybe you can just reflect a bit. What was, what might've been hard about change for you, Natalie? And as you've had more experience and matured, how have you found, how has it been helpful for you to better embrace and navigate change? So I think that's something really many, many folks um, have as an opportunity. Um, well, change, I think it, if it's planned change, it's much easier to deal with because you're in control all the time. But life doesn't work that way. You get a lot of um, unexpected or forced change. So uh, I... I've traveled the world because of my husband's position. So he, I went, I followed his career and I always adapted my career according to what fit in. So I know that's not for everybody, but I just, that's the role I, I chose to take. So um, I always feel like, I think my nature, by nature, I'm, I'm more of a support system and I like, I like to help people. So even when I do go to get into philanthropy, I like to help. Uh, anyway, so I think when it's imposed change, you kind of have to step back and find what, it, what is in your control. Because even when it's an imposed change, there's, there's steps you can do to adjust. And you have to find that even though there's change, you will always, always find something familiar in the change and kind of latch onto that and what reflect on what worked and what didn't. So reflection is really, really important when navigating through change. Definitely are educated in that. Those are wise words, folks, to be able to handle that. Um, I uh, So first of all, kudos also for just the partnership that you and your husband have. And I know both cases where um, the wife has a role and, you know, I think you can have it all in life. You can't have it all in the same time. And the ability mm -hmm. to really work as a dynamic duo to figure out what best supports 
each of you is really awesome. So I just <laughs> think that that's a big kudos to you guys to be so um, in sync about. Would you talk to us about, because I think this is another thing, I've seen this a lot lately, and this is happening to me personally, like you just, there's a sense of overwhelm. It's like, like too much. And in a given moment, you kind of feel the sense of like, I just want to lie on the floor and look at the ceiling. I can't, I can't take it anymore. Like, you know, sort of a little <laughs> bit on the edge. And I'm just wondering what have you found effective or in your studies, what sort of advice might you share when we feel like we're, it's a little, like we're bubbling over, not like a full boil where the lid's flying off, but you're just feeling like it's not good. Yeah, it's also like imposter syndrome, I think, is what you're talking about as well. You think, like, like should I really be doing this? I'm in over my head. Um, yeah, I, I think anyone who, anyone, everyone who is, is going for something at one point is going to doubt if they really can succeed. Uh, and again, I, I always find just stopping. If you need to lie on the floor, great, lie on the floor. You know, it, you need to take a step back and see, okay, why am I doing this? Again, reflection is such a powerful tool. Uh, and I, it's just going back. Why am I doing this? What's my plan? Where am I? What have I achieved? Kind of look at how far have you come? And just don't look at, you know, where you want to be, but look at what's the next step. So what do I need to get back on path if I think I, I can't get do it all? Um, and it might mean cutting back on things. So it might mean, you know, I, at one point, I was doing volunteer work, I was going to golf lessons, I was training for a half marathon, and I was um, doing uh, some charitable work as well, like, um, what do you call it, climate like climate change work and recycling and things like that, as work as well as a job and, and two you know, teenage boys at the time. And I literally just said, okay, something's gotta give, I need to stop something, otherwise I'm, you know, I, I'm not, I can't, I had to be good to myself. I had to it cut, what can I cut out? Okay, not not my family, never my family. <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing as a, a mom and the teenage boys, those are those are big years. So that is a very big internal conversation with oneself because mm -hmm. you say I never and parents never want to cut the family. At the same time, one needs to take care of oneself, whether the mother or the father. You've got to be your best self for you first and then the family. So just talk a bit about that tension. How have you, when was it a tough choice to say, you know what, the boys might need me to do this, but I really need to do this for Natalie. Um, I, I'm not the best person to ask that because I, my husband says the kid, the boys always came first, then him, and then then me, then the house, and then me. So I, I, I'm the worst for myself. I literally wait till I'm about to explode till I say, okay, just and I just I don't I don't actually explode. But I would be like, right, that's it. I've got to just stop. And I'll for me, I found going for a run or going to the gym and just giving myself time completely, completely on my own without anybody else. Once a week for sure. But if I could even do ten minutes, twenty minutes a day, that would be great. But once a week, I had an hour to myself completely, and it would be doing whatever I I needed to do, whether it's meditate, but. I found for me running is a good, I meditated while I ran. I, I just kind of focus more when I'm running. I can clear my head. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and I always had to learn to say, no, that's, that's what you have to learn. That's a, that's a big word I had to add to my vocabulary. And that, that was my, 
I think I was organizing a birthday party for my kid, for my son. He was, he was 15 or 16 and it just got overwhelming. Cause it was like, I want this. I want that. I want that. And then I said, okay, pretend you're doing this party for your best friend. And how would you do it? What can you, to you, to you organize it. And then let's just see how it goes rather than me doing everything. Um, now they're both independent men. So, so it's not like they, they're both completely independent, but it's just me telling them, listen, if you want it, you have to take charge. I'm not going to do everything for you. So this is so fascinating to hear you reflect on your own growth journey. And I guess looking forward, if you're, you know, can tell you're a lifelong learner, I appreciate that you and in grace, Natalie, what would you say is your, what's, what's on your growth area right now? Um, well, I promised my husband I wouldn't do my PhD because <laughs> he gets stressed seeing me, seeing me stress. Um, cause I, but which Grace, I don't know if you've ever had that, but, uh, yeah, I, I found I had to promise him I wouldn't do PhD cause it's my second master's. I like my first master's in education. And then I did a master this, this last one, um, which by the way, I was, I was over 50 when I did my master's. So I was the oldest student in the class, uh, which I found really um, strange, but I ended up putting my teacher hat on because I found the other students kept coming to me to ask to proofread things for them. And so it was really, really strange. So that was interesting. But I think um, going forward, I'm looking at just taking care, like really, really taking care of me. So I'm nearing retirement, maybe in 10 years time. So it's about, about uh, planning how I'm going to navigate seeing my kids who both are now settled in the U.S. and hopefully grandbabies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but at the same time, also um, just enjoying it, getting my husband also to slow down and just spending quality time with him. We've been together for nearly 40 years now. So it's just a matter of, you know, having time with them, with family again, like my 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 parents, his parents, thank God they're also alive back in Malta, but it's, you know, just enjoying um, not so much growth, but more um, just relaxing a little bit, a little bit more touring, like seeing more of the world. It was something I would like to do and more philanthropy work. Philanthropy work, I think there's never enough time to do that. It, it's always, I, I think you get a lot back by giving. So um, doing more philanthropy work. That's fantastic. On the philanthropy, I am curious because you are so um, methodical in a really good way. You're holistic, you're, you're thoughtful. When you think philanthropically, how have you gone about, because when you're into that world, you know, everything you do is helpful to someone, right? So how have yeah. you um, approached your, your being, you know, your, your philanthropic resources? Um, well, I, my husband and I used to go to Ethiopia. We were a group of about 40 people. Uh, we used to go every six months, 10 of us at a time, see what they needed. And it was a, a village really in um, Aksum in Ethiopia where my friend is from. And she had gone back to visit. And that kind of went started like the actual philanthropy. But I, um, and we just went back, saw what they did. So we microfinanced and helped get kids into university, get them off the street. And unfortunately, you know, especially with the coup that was there last year, and I, I was in tears when I was watching the news because I recognized the places that were popping up on the news. But um, anyway, like that would be like physical. But I think philanthropy for me also was 
instilling that in my in my children and as an educator i instilled that i ran projects at schools where kids can do philanthropy so for instance my younger son went to vietnam and did some uh, built houses for people in vietnam my older son worked with special needs schools when he had the chance um and it's always instilling and then i did projects like um bottle recycling at school uh organic gardening uh and getting kids involved in the COP uh, for, was it two years ago? COP, United Nations Talks two years ago. So it's always about doing doing that. And now as I work in um, an embassy of Malta, I work in the embassy in, in Qatar, uh, It's I, I kind of enjoy helping people with consular services and things like that as well. So every, even in my role, in my job, I try and see how can, can people become more socially conscious and socially aware? And it should stem at a young, young age rather than when you're at an adult and say, okay, now I'm going to jump on whatever bandwagon there is, you know? I love how you've done this. I love the example that you're setting for listeners. And, you know, once you create a space for that, it, it, it's a, I call it the pie chart of all the things you do, right? There's a wedge there and it serves you and it serves it helps you to help your community and make a better world. So I love that. You know, I didn't realize we had Ethiopia in common. I had a game-changing initial philanthropic endeavor with Save the Children. We had an empowering women's and girls trip to Addis Ababa area and into um, Uganda as well. Women's oh, wow. and girls education and the whole notion of clean water because the girls have to go get the water and then they don't go to school. And, um, and bathrooms and facilities for the girls to use. And so it was, it just opened my eyes to like from the UN in New York or the World Bank mm -hmm. in DC, it's hard. You know, if you're not there on the ground and really trying to figure out how do you help people help themselves. Um, so it's just a really, it just it made the world smaller for me. It was also very humbling. And it also was a sense of for everyone, we can do something, right? Whatever it is in some little way, you can help literally the world be a better place. Um, no, exactly. Love it. Yeah, exactly. I, I loved Ethiopia. <laughs> I yeah, loved no, Ethiopia. I do. I remember, I, I, and, I, and one thing about, I will tell you the this was a big strong point. The, the um, Rick Stoner and his wife, she was a great example. And, um, you know, this, because people were poor and, you know, everywhere people are begging for money. And she, if a child had their school pass and she had par parked at a shop, she would pay them you know, I think about a dollar was like 12 cents. She would give them money, but they had to do a job and they had to have a school pass. And so okay. it was just, you know, I was just trying to get my head around it. And so it was just, she was really a great um, inspiration for me. Okay, we will go to Ethiopia in another talk. I'm going to come <laughs> back to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Natalie. We're going to head to America. Okay, we're coming to uh, the great state of, uh, the Grand Canyon state actually of Arizona, who uh, Roger transplanted from Chicago recently. And Roger, you've been on a great ride too. Thanks for coming back to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Share with listeners where you are now. You, my friend, we've gone through some ups and downs. I've gotten <laughs> calls from you and I feel like there's a bit of living the dream now. It's interesting because I would have not ever thought that, well, let me rewind a little bit. So getting ready to graduate from high school in 92, I had opportunity to obviously go and play college football and actually Arizona State was one of my top choices and back then we lived in the VHS era 
and you send those things off in the mail and quite often you really never know if uh, it would arrive. So obviously that didn't happen. But of course, to kind of fast forward things, um, here it is 30 years later, I ended up where I wanted to be. But I spent 30 years going through the ups and downs, peaks and valleys of what it was like to experience um, good times. And I don't call them bad times. Because I pretty much learned in those um, dark valley experiences is that the, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ kept me in a position to just keep walking that place and space, even though I couldn't see along the way. But of course, I trusted in my faith to keep me going. And um, with that, you know, my career, obviously with what I had thought I was going to do, actually put me in a place where my lifelong dream is starting to happen. And going from being a, growing up in Detroit native to then going to uh, college in Tennessee, then transferring to Michigan, graduating from there, then going to Chicago for my graduate degree to study sports medicine to eventually become a physical therapist. But when there was a, there was a time in the late 2000s that the healthcare industry hit rock bottom and there were a significant number of layoffs. Um, I happened upon an opportunity to teach in higher education in 2010. Next thing you know, my career started to accelerate as well as along the way, had some uh, bumps and bruises with my career. But of course, along the way, I had to keep what I had in mind, what I had in sight because I knew eventually at some point I will get to where I need to be because my biggest goal was to be the support and be the Jesus that many people don't see in the world, especially with everything that's going on in this world today. Because my purpose is to serve others to a capacity in which I find joy in that. You know, there's a lot of gifts people can say that they have as far as, well, I'm, a, I'm good at playing music. Well, I'm good at cooking. Well, for me, to be honest, and it's something that's probably not the most popular gift, but of course, I'm really gifted in serving because there has to come with an, a, an amount of esteem and rapport that you appreciate uh, mankind. You, you don't disregard anybody's humanity and you look for the very best in every culture, ethnicity, and that's, I believe, and that's what had got me to where I'm here uh, today at a major university that, which by chance the role that I'm in came all of a sudden. <laughs> and uh, what a journey it's been since relocating here by myself first, um, November of last year. And then my family came uh, in January because we had to go through the process of selling our home and I had to get my, my two sons who are in high school uh, enrolled here. So that in itself all together had been a journey. So um, that's where I am so appreciative of where I'm at and where I had to go through to get where I'm at today.
Yeah, it's it's uh, we've we've had you on. We've talked offline about some of the things that may have happened at work that were not super. And I give you tons of credit, Roger, for taking the high road. Um, and that's not easy, folks. You know, sometimes you may have rightfully been wronged, and it's really hard to not want to right. you know <laughs> take revenge and all sorts of other things that would feel great. And so. You know what we're talking about. I'm, I'm hats off to you on that. And I, I just want to call it something with each and of you folks. There's this real sense of your own groundedness, as you mentioned. You have, and we're always getting to know ourselves for who we really are, folks. That is a lifelong journey. But each of you, I've always been inspired. You just have a sense of yourself. And when you feel that, even though you're not sure what how, exactly how that you're going to be okay your ability to be able to serve others is opens up, right? Because it's hard to serve others if we're really worried about our own self and trying to take care of ourselves or worried about um, what's gonna happen. And I really admire each of you for your ability to be able to lean into the service. And I will quote my absolute idol and mentor um, who recently passed, Francis Hasselbein, to serve is to live. And to be able to live that life in, and when I say serve, you know, ways big and small, but is really, I, I think, central to feeling happy and living meaningfully. And really, that's what I'd love people to, to have in their lives, right, is to feel like there's a meaningful life, that you know love, that you've been loved, um, and, and there's a sense of, of uh, meaning for people. Uh, Roger, would you share with listeners, like, what are you doing at work? And then I'd like to invite Grace and Natalie, because I think we have such a great diversity of, uh, in the broadest sense, and I'd love to have some group dialogue. Certainly. So as of right now, I'm in a senior executive director's position, in which actually, I, interesting enough in why um, Natalie and uh, Grace are on, I actually work with 90% women. And secondly, I work with women who are from various cultures, all different races. And I actually am one of the very few men uh, that are in this major university's Department of Education, Outreach, and Student Services. And um, they're mostly in levels of leadership. But of course, I oversee a team of nine women, <laughs> to be exact. Um, and I was quite interested in knowing, like, wow, I'm reporting to two that are of very different cultural backgrounds. Then I have a team of nine women of various distinct cultural backgrounds. What I began to understand is women in leadership, they have a, you all have a, a capacity to help meet the expectations of how the man is supposed to be the uh, foundation to keep the pillars, the pillars are still going strong. And I find that between the two that I report to and the nine that report to me, keep me balanced and allow me to utilize the best assets to my job, which allows me to number one, oversee two major programs. One in particular is a conduit pathway, which takes diverse talent. Uh, and that's mostly of the underserved youth uh, within the community between black, Hispanic, indigenous, and Asian. And basically we take these high school students and we give them opportunities to have, be a part of various pathways 
for being exposed to post-secondary post-secondary education, as well as also career exploration, uh, especially with a wealth of the um, careers and the industries that are up and coming. And so we give them the opportunity to have exposure to a lot of what our university, especially our department, provides for them through a significant number of uh, assemblies, to events, to uh, conferences, to seminars, to high school career exploration days, where I lead with setting up workshops, career workshops with these high school officials. And we come into the schools um, and we have a full day of giving these upperclassmen the opportunity to see what's available, have employers come in to talk to them. So I'm working with employers from all different industries. And um, that's on one particular part of the spectrum that I really enjoy and I'm enthusiastic about now. And I'm also given the autonomy to oversee a budget that quite honestly is very important to the university and has been given my responsibility to take care of it. Uh, which I never would have thought, seeing in my wildest dream, that it would happen this soon, but I'm very grateful. And then the other program is a college readiness program in which we work with high school students that are in the foster care system, and we provide them life skills, academic prowess, opportunities to be prepared for life itself uh, professionally, as well as also um, spearheading them and getting them prepared for post-secondary ed education, whether they decide to come here to the university or if they want to start off uh, working first, in which we have very significant number of vocational partnership uh, entities that we can align the students with. And the beautiful thing is creating an environment for them, a safe space, which whatever their life had been like and being moved around in various foster care system, child welfare agencies, we created programs and opportunities for them to have that place to be here at the university, work with those college students that once were in the same program, but they continued on in a college program, um, which is uh, giving them the opportunity to mentor the young, younger kids. So, uh, Obviously, my hats are many, a lot of moving pieces, but I, I can tell you that uh, my ability to connect with people at the professional level, even sitting and um, having a break period with the president of the university has been truly an awe-inspiring moment for me. But the biggest thing for me is uh, why I'm passionate about what I do and why go into those places and spaces where oftentimes the underserved people of color and youth are under are, uh, are not seen is for me is most people look away when they see someone else's challenges or pain. Well, I'm not most people. And I'm one that will walk with them through it and help them see the brightness of where their future could be. And um, that's where, that's what I love doing. That's what I'm here to do today and hopefully looking forward to more as time goes on. That is so fabulous. Before I open this up to uh, all three of you, okay, so a dozen people and you're one guy, right? One black guy, yeah. and 11 women. Okay, so what, yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. okay, what, it may not be, but what is, what was challenging or is challenging for you? 
What was challenging for me was relocating my family across the mid from Midwest to the West Coast. Um, thankfully, my wife has a job that it, her career is remote. Yet um, there's some opportunities that I'm looking for for her here because this university is big and it's huge, <clears throat> and uh, might be some other things there. So it took a little time for that adjustment itself. But my youngest son, who's 15, he struggled the most with the move because he was leaving his two athletic programs and his friends and everything. And he took it the hardest. But the purpose of why I had I took this opportunity because the way that it was presented, it was the timing of it. But I, I saw the big picture for the opportunities that can open up for my two sons because I already were working with high school coaches and people who have uh, – worked at the collegiate and um, professional level in sports. And um, even before they got here, my a lot of people knew of my sons. So to make a long story short, um, mm -hmm. the challenge was getting him to see that because of where we were, he wasn't getting the opportunities uh, that he is getting now. Because number one, he uh, we were in a predominantly uh, white community but of course, that didn't take away from any person's athletic ability. But we knew the the community did not strive to um, make sure athletes and those who once they graduated from high school had something to fall back on. And I knew from this perspective, I said, I want to give my children a chance. And this is a big sacrifice I'm taking to take them across country. But I knew the move, the timing of it was right. And nice. so now he's in a position now where he's able to thrive. He's playing football and basketball. The coaches are overwhelmed and overjoyed by his, his professional skill set at such a young age. And he's getting the looks. He's getting moving quickly. And then my oldest son is already breaking into uh, the field of uh, software engineering and engineering programs. And he's going to be a senior this year in high school. But the university here, people are already – helping me work with him to get him prepared for his career and going into college. So uh, nice. that was the biggest challenge. And nice. when I nice. had to show him the big picture, they, they saw the opportunity to come out together. Great. Listen, I'm going to go open it up and I'd love to hear from um, Natalie and from Grace on the topic you all raised and this ability to really help folks who don't have the example, don't have the resources, don't have the network. Um, I'm going to ask maybe what seems like not the obvious question. It can look like a win-lose. We're helping um, the underrepresented. We're not helping the dominant group. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how do we help when we're creating opportunity for those who haven't had it. How do we help everyone see that as serving the whole, that it's not a win-lose, that in fact we're better and we're stronger when everyone has a chance to be at the table? So um, maybe Natalie put you on the spot. Thoughts oh. on that? Uh, I I can make, I, again. I'm going to refer back to Ethiopia. But um, when my when my son went to Vietnam and when I went to Ethiopia, when the skills that he learned and and the skills that I learned, even though I, I was a, an adult, when you when you actually can see what other people have, and you have that empathetic. Um, so you develop your empathy and not everyone gets the opportunity in life to develop empathy. So I think doing, doing some kind of philanthropy work is a real opportunity. And, and I, I love what um, 
what he was saying about serving others. It, there, I think I get more helping other people than what I'm actually giving other people, if you know what I mean. So, so it's a win-win because the person who does, who, who develops that empathy and who develops the, that sense of, you know, I can do, I can do something. I, I, I have that ability to, you are helping yourself. And it's not about giving money or it's, but it's about teaching someone to be self-reliant. It's about seeing what skills they have. So for example, we, we worked with a bunch of women who did crafts and we said, oh, like, what you guys really need is somewhere to, to sell your things. So we actually took things back to Dubai, sold them, and that, well, we bought them from them, sold them in Dubai. And then we, we set up, we taught them, showed them how they can set up a shop in Dubai, but also in back in Ethiopia. So they were actually setting up and selling their wares in a more um, like to tourists. And you do had a few tourists, but there was there was a, that opportunity to sell to other people. So we were teaching them skills. Now that we also helped girls to um, develop a beauty salon. So we we my husband and I actually took down that project ourselves, helping them to do it. And it was just such a sense of satisfaction going back to a year or two years later and seeing how not only did they have the beauty salon, they built above the beauty salon and they started renting out space. And so seeing that you you actually had a hand in someone developing, it is a win-win. You don't take away from anyone. And in, ta- in fact, they became economically active and the whole community started to thrive as well. So people had money to spend and they were they had things to do with their time rather than, you know, and you've been to Ethiopia. They are a, such a happy community and you think, you know, these people are happy and they, they have barely nothing. And then you see people who have everything material wise and they're miserable. So it's, it's, you know, who, who has, who really is the richer person is what yeah. I started to think I myself, you know, I love it. That is resonates so much. Grace, over to you. Um, I actually started to mentor uh, some undergrad student when I was in my PhD program and because I taught undergrad classes and I found it interesting because a lot of uh, people of color, you know, Asian, black, young, um, uh, you know, female and male students, they always like to go to my office hours, you know, talk about their coursework and sometimes they talk about their everyday lives at universities with me. So at that time, I realized that, you know, uh, they wanted to find the people on the campus who they can relate with closely. And I was actually in that position. So, um, you know, because of that experience, it just made, motivated me further to uh, advance my mentorship with, you know, people from uh, uh, marginalized communities. And also I want to um, talk about how I want to, uh, you know, mentor and engage with uh people through my professional work because of my personal cultural and national background so i did my uh, doctor research on china and now went to south africa so when i returned from south africa to uh, la last year uh, a first year doctor students from my previous phd program who is a young black woman uh, who is doing her research um Ghana and Nigeria, she came to me and talked about her research with me and I gave her some uh, advice on how to advance her research. And she found my advice uh, very, very helpful because I had that research experience in South Africa. So I, I can understand what she wanted to do 
uh, about her research in Africa. So uh, even though we are not from the same ethnicity, but you know because we have the similar research interest in one region, so it's just we we much easier to engage. And I want to say that we have that kind of similar research interest because uh, because of our cultural uh, social background and it is e it is easier for us as scholars to engage in that kind of research topics in America uh, when you know uh, the mainstream research topics are not uh, some sometimes uh, are very prevalent uh, in a lot of books or journals so I just yeah. want to uh, yeah pinpoint that. Thank you very much. The we can the help comes from places you might least expect it. Roger, one minute, and then we'll wrap. Certainly, um, I would have to say I've actually have been able to uh, empathize because being with being mostly being the only one of very few men on a team of mostly women of various diverse backgrounds. My onboarding allowed me to sit with each of them and learn not that just not just about their role, but I they were able to express the things that they would like to see within their own culture, education wise. So it allowed me to plan accordingly how I can address the issues that are the matters of the heart and to how I can reach each of these uh, communities and then express to seeking what employers are looking for in these up and coming young minds because reaching back to the high schools, employers see the benefit of creating an opportunity for them to get these internships as they move into college and they can work part-time doing their in internships, getting the training exposure. And it also allows these, the, 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 the merger to bridge the gap between the two ethnicities and cultures to That's really awesome. understand. I'm going to have to cut you off right here, Raj. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Not thank you so much. I just want to thank each and every one of you. You guys have made my day showing how we are, in fact, better together. I am here for you. Thank you all for being part of the solution in the biggest way. And my thought from the week, energy flows from commitment. And that's from George Leonard. Finally, I want to appreciate the amazing folks who make this show possible, the whole crew at Voice America, the unflappable Eric Patton, who's behind the scenes supporting every episode. Thank you, Eric, for being a terrific partner and driving force. And that's a wrap, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.